Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. If you would like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review, as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. When I hear the phrase social skills, I usually don't get a good feeling because a lot of these skills I see taught within the context of social skills aren't helpful to autistic people as they aren't taught from an autistic affirming perspective. However, when I hear of an autistic person teaching these skills, I am interested to learn what skills they do teach and in what ways they do so to truly benefit autistic people. That's why I'm happy to talk with Mara McLaughlin to discuss teaching social skills, taking a neurodiversity affirming approach. Mara also talks uh, with me about being appointed to the Oregon Commission for Autism and the Interventions Committee. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Mara, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Doug. It's my pleasure. I wanted to kind of start out like I do with a lot of our guests and learn where does your story in the autistic community begin? Well, (laughs) that's a little bit of a loaded question. I knew about autism before I knew what autism was, right? Yeah, I mean, there was some family ties, you know, the uncle that never left home, but knew the dates of everyone's birthdays and anniversaries and would, you know, recite them as his, you know, way of interacting. And then just being twice exceptional in school and being observed a lot by different administrators and knowing that I was being observed, but not knowing why. (laughs) And then getting older and in graduate school, I was, you know, I went to grad school as a speech language pathologist to work with people with traumatic brain injuries. And then I just got these, you know, clients in the practicum lab that were autistic. And I was like, oh, wow, their minds, look at how they work. You know, and I just became really fascinated and then felt like an affinity and moved into my career and noticed that, you know, some of these really what were called, you know, quote unquote, high functioning still needed a lot of support. And I was on the autism eval team, you know, for various education service districts. I got to the point where I said, you know, like there's just dearth of services for people when they get older and you know everybody wants to work with the littles right and then they get older and they still have needs so when the pandemic hit i said okay you know here's my chance and i launched this business which brings us where we are today i I was laughing a little bit um when you said working with the littles because that's kind of how i started out in supporting autistic people uh, autistic kids and i always joke now because my interests are more about supporting autistic teens and adults 
that oh, I just hate those kids. I mean, I'm just joking, but it's just to point out to people like there is so much support needed for us as we get into adulthood. Yeah. So you mentioned being a speech pathologist. As in addition to that, you're the owner of IRL Social Skills. So when I hear the phrase social skills, you know, a lot of times I get a little nervous because I think lots of times social skills are taught to autistic people that don't really benefit them. These skills aren't necessarily helpful. So what do you think are some challenges to teaching social skills to autistic and neurodivergent folks? There are several challenges. The first being like, oh, you know, you don't... Just because you might have good social skills doesn't mean you necessarily know how to teach them. It's like, you know, how do you teach a fish to swim? You know, how does, well, they just know how to do it. How do you teach someone how to, how do you describe how to eat and swallow? There's actually a lot of steps to that process, but, well, you just do it, right? The challenge is... What happens typically is there's a focus on having students, you know, put on their best normal and be, okay, you know, you just have to pretend like you're like everyone else. And how, how can you do that? Because you're not like everyone else. The skills, you know, when people are on an IEP in school and they're taught social skills, you know, the problem is number one, they're not using an evidence-based mm. curriculum. Number two, there's no parent training component to help with that generalization of skills. And number three, the dosage is way too low. And there's, you know, it's like the way that we teach, first of all, we use an evidence-based curriculum. Second of all, we teach the parents. Third of all, the dosage is intense. It's a 16-week program. And the secret sauce is that these learners, teens and adults, get to be around other people who share their neurotype. And we know that autistic people do it different. And it, they have been thus far in an invalidating environment. We know that this culture, you know, hates difference. <laughs> and then they get to be around people with whom they share a neurotype. That in and of itself is very healing because they're like, oh, you know, I, I fit in. That's the thing. You got to get in where you fit in. And there's a sense of, you know, autistic people are awesome. <laughs> you get to feel how it feels to be with other people with whom you share a neurotype, with whom you often share common interests. And you get to like learn how to, how that feels. And then you say, huh, I want more of that feeling. And so I'm going to turn away from these people who don't acknowledge me, who invalidate me, who are teasing me, who are bullying me, who are excluding me. You know what? I'm, I've had enough of that. And I'm going to turn to these people who get me. And I'm going to use some skills to cultivate and maintain these relationships. Now, I think, you know, thinking about each person's neurotype, um, in relations to social skills is really important. So from what I understand, that is a component or a focus of what you do in teaching social skills. So 
What does that exactly look like, um, that type of education for participants? Yeah, thanks, Doug. So the first 15 minutes of class, our classes are an hour and 45 minutes long. The first 15 minutes of class, we are teaching about the brain. We are teaching about the autistic neurotype and the strengths. It's a strengths-based approach because you got to play to the strengths. You know, it's no fun to be in a situation where like, oh, here's something that you're not good at. Let's just keep on doing that because you're not good at it. Like, that's just so deflating and discouraging. So we teach about the autistic neurotype, the strengths. We teach about just really like structures and functions of the brain. We teach about how there are actually differences in the autistic brain, especially when it comes to the amygdala and the anxiety, which is really fear. You know, that's the core emotion of anxiety is really fear. And we teach about, you know, ways to mitigate and cope with the anxiety using our bodies and using our breath. Absolutely. For me, and I think for a lot of people, interoception is... I don't know if I want to say deficit, but it's definitely a challenge in our lives. Um, you know, and I don't, and I think with social skills, you know, rarely do I hear that interoception incorporated with it within that framework. But I think you're like it's it's so essential. I know, like within what you do, you emphasize interoception. So I'd love to learn how do you incorporate that within the concept and framework of teaching social skills. So still within that first 15 minutes of class, we do a little brain education of, well, actually, first we meditate. We move from one minute to five minutes. Over the course of the first class is one minute, second class, two minutes, et cetera, up to five minutes. We stay at a five-minute meditation throughout the 16-week course. And within that meditation, we are really focusing on, like, what is happening with our breath and what is happening with our body? Like noticing, noticing the contact that your body is making with your chair or your bed or wherever you're seated. Noticing the air on your skin. Noticing the sensation of your clothing on your body. Noticing the coolness of the breath as it enters your nose. Noticing, just notice, notice, notice. And then we go into something, it's by Lindsay Brams, it's the emotion sensation wheel that she's created. And some people have seen different wheels like this, but the part that I just love about her wheel is the outer ring has physical sensations that correlate to emotions. And this is hard stuff. Interoception is difficult, especially for, you know, I mean, just culturally, we tend to be neck up. And our bodies are so smart. They don't lie. And the body can only be in this moment, right now, doing this. The body can't be in the future. The body can't be in the past. So that is what is essential, is to build that awareness of the body and what is happening with the body in terms of like physical sensations, how they relate to the emotions, and just being able to sit with those experiences 
okay? What is happening? Something that happens in our classes, especially so cute with the teens. There are in-group calls or video chats that take place as part of the homework and, you know, within the context of coaching by the parents as well. And they get, they're like, what is happening to my body? You know, I'm like, my, like palms are sweating. My heart is racing. What is happening? You know, when they're having to like, you know, first make these calls and then they notice like, oh, you know, that's the feeling of, you know, fear because you're doing something different. And you don't know this person and you're like, and you're challenged. And then you notice on subsequent calls that those symptoms have started to dissipate. So, you know, you get to notice and you, and it's experiential learning. You know, you feel it for yourself because no one else can tell you how you're feeling, but you can know based on your physical symptoms, if you will, what you're feeling. And this includes, you know, feelings of joy. How does joy feel in the body? And what happens that parents report after their teens or young adults get off of these, like, calls, which sometimes last, you know, an hour. <laughs> and parents are just flabbergasted because they're like, wow, my, I've never seen my kid, like, really, like, connect with someone mm-hmm. and stay on a phone call for this length of time and they get off and they're really happy. And, you know, we encourage parents to say like, wow, you know, like I noticed like that, you know, your face is bright and your body seems relaxed. Do you feel relaxed? Do you feel, you know what, that like can correlate to the emotion of happiness. So we work through the emotion sensation wheel. We, it's really scaffolded and we model it as a team. I have a team of, including myself, it's four clinicians that run a class with no more than 10 families in it. And then we, you know, tell like a simple story. I was at my kickball game and I noticed that my, it was the championship game and I noticed that my like fists were clenched and my stomach was like, I felt kind of nauseous and then we won the game. And then I noticed that my body relaxed and I felt like really warm and all over my body. And that was the feeling of happiness. So we scaffolded it out. And then parents, we encourage parents to you know tell us a story like that. And then we finally moved to our learners. And, you know, and to be able to talk to someone else about how you're feeling It's a social skill. (laughs) And, you know, we can all improve our social skills. That's the thing as lifelong learners. And knowing that anytime you're interacting with another human, you're using social skills if you want (laughs) to use them. But first, you got to know how to do them. And it's just skills upon skills upon skills. I'm a big fan of the uh, emotion sensation wheel. Um, just like an example for myself in my life is like many times I'll feel tense in my body and I, I'm asking myself, why am I feeling so tense now? And then the emotion sensation wheel, it, it connects that to fear. And so it really help, can help me in some situations to unpack, well, wait a second, I'm fearful right now, and why Why is that the case? So I think it can be 
really helpful in my self-awareness and many of the things that you talked about. Yeah, and, and not only that, Doug, but to say, okay, why am I fearful? You know, and I'm going to honor that feeling. What can I do? What can I do with my body? I can do dots and squeezes, mm -hmm. you know? I can breathe in deeply and then blow out completely. <sighs> I can do that five times. I can do that ten times. What can I do to kind of change this thing, you know, this fear? I don't want to stay in this state of fear, so what can I do to move beyond that? Yes, and also, is my fear founded? And, you know, fear is a valuable emotion. It helps us, it helps us stay safe. If there's a saber-toothed tiger, you know, over there, or even just, you know, a like a dog and I'm afraid of dogs, you know, that dog might bite me. Mm -hmm. So I need to keep myself safe. And, you know, is that fear founded? And something else that you mentioned that I do practically every day is meditation. I know for some people they, they say, well, you know, meditation doesn't help me. But, you know, sometimes it's the type of meditation you do, for example. And I mean, I think there can certainly be frustrations even when you have as, as much experience as I do in, in meditating, you know, even every day. So I'm just wondering within your, the context of social s skills, I, you mentioned meditation. Maybe can you talk a little bit more about that meditation and maybe other like mindful practices that are co incorporated with what you do? So, you know, we just start our, you know, our first class is just a silent meditation. We explain throughout the course of the classes that, you know, this is co-regulation. So because we know how it feels when we are dysregulated, we know how it feels to have somebody just be there with us, just breathing with us, you know, and doing their own self-regulation, right? We know that to have somebody, you know, talk to us in a soothing voice helps us. That's, that's co-regulation. So we frame it as co-regulation. And we are all together, like as parents and learners, in the same room for the first 15 minutes of class. And we know we are co-regulating, we are getting our bodies, our breath, our minds prepared for this class. And then you also have these skills that can help you with self-regulation because, you know, we know that anytime, you know, you're in a relationship with somebody, there's going to be problems. <laughs> it's just a fact of life. And being like, okay, you know, so I know that I learned in class that when you know, I'm feeling like upset about something that I can take my breaths. I can practice different kinds of breath work because we teach different kinds. You know, I love, my background is yoga, hatha yoga, you know, been studying that for like, you know, like in seriously for 25 years. You know, it is a practice that, you know, I might, you know, not be stable in my practice. I might have so much going on that I'm not doing my like long practice, but you know what I can do? I can light a candle. I can stay for just one minute and just be without trying to be anything or anyone and just be. 
I can do that. I can give myself that. And that just brings us into that self-compassion and that self-love, which, you know, these are practices. And, you know, the messaging that autistic people get is very invalidating. It's very, you know, you're too sensitive. It's not that bad. Get over it. You know, the messaging is pretty consistently negative, even though, you know, within the neurodiversity movement, we've really made some really great strides in the past 20 years. And especially in the past, like, two years, there's just been an explosion around of awareness, of consciousness raising. And we still have a long way to go because there's still a lot of misinformation out there that has, you know, has took hold I mean, look what it's, I mean, don't get me started because I can go on and on about the absurdity around some of these myths around autism. So we need to like combat those myths with our own, you know, by shoring up our own self-confidence, self-awareness, self-compassion, and like I said, self-love. Now, something that's really been important to me as this, as this podcast has develop approaching about 200 episodes is I've really been interested in hearing more from uh, non-speaking autistic folks and have had several of them on in the in the last year or so something in relation to that from what I understand in addition to teaching social skills you're passionate about working with non-speaking clients to learn how to communicate using AAC so Uh So what do you think are maybe some of important things to consider when supporting someone to learn how to use AAC? Oh, gosh. You know, so that's like a really big question. When I was working in the schools, that was my area of expertise, was AAC, working with non-speaking autistics. And the first thing to remember is to expect competence. Because just because a person can't talk, which usually is a symptom of apraxia, right? Just because a person can't talk, just because they can't coordinate the fine motor movements of speech doesn't mean they can't think, plan, make decisions. In teaching the use of AAC, it's not like, oh, here, you know, here's a machine, now talk. I mean, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of modeling that has to take place there's a lot of training of environments and I think of it in terms of you know when we look at child development and language development like a typically developing baby who is in what we would call an enriched environment an environment in which they are you know getting an enormous amount of input okay and that is linguistic input what do they come up with after a year of all of this input, millions of words that they've heard over and over again, mama, ball. (laughs) So the point being, it just takes an enormous amount of input and you have to be patient and you're looking at just modeling. If you want somebody to use AAC, you have to use AAC. You know, like if I want somebody to, you know, use a device to communicate with me, I'm not going to just be using my own fluent speech. I'm going to have my own device. I'm going to be using it. I'm going to be modeling, 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 and respecting that communication 
and you know communication lots of times we're like well we want them to talk you know like well you know we also want to know that someone is comprehending what we're saying because if you it's one thing to not be able to speak which you know in and of itself is very very difficult it's another thing to not be able to understand what people are saying to you because of the speed at which you're speaking because there's no visual support right you know verbal language is just you know floating through the air uh, we don't have a closed caption thing on our chest although there is some good AAC that is coming out that is in terms of technology that is going to bridge that gap of like showing visual speech like just how we're watching the closed captions right now Doug in the last year, you were given quite an honor as you were appointed to be a member of the Oregon Commission for Autism and the Intervention Subcommittee. So mm -hmm. I'd love to know what's been your experience uh, with this commission so far. So my experience with the commission so far, it's only been, uh, well, since January, so not that long. It's a two-year appointment. The commission itself has been around for a while, it is led by a woman who has an autistic adult son, and her background is in as a health insurance lawyer. So yeah, there's you know it's a real sad state of affairs in terms of assessment and then treatment and having it be covered. We know that what is covered is ABA. And, you know, to get other services covered is really challenging. My style is, okay, so there's a problem. I want to do something. I want to do something that works. And here I go. <laughs> so working within the context of the commission, you know, there's, I mean, there's several members, maybe 15 members of the whole commission. So, you know, our work is still in progress. The interventions, it's intervention strategies and supports, subcommittee, and, you know, everyone is still really, like, there's a lot of learning that is taking place and a lot of trying to figure out, you know, how to navigate in terms of moving legislation. Because that is, you know, we are working at the state level trying to get, you know, for example, there's like a two-year wait list for evaluations, even for kids. Two years in the life of a four-year-old? Then, okay, so what? how are we intervening then? Okay, but they get assessed. How are we intervening? Is it in a neurodiversity-affirming way? Are we training environments, or are we just, you know, focusing on the student, if you will, or the person, the autistic person? So there's, you know, it needs to be both. We have this, you know, tendency to be, oh, well, it needs to be this or that. It needs to be both. And that's, in terms of what we do with IRL social skills, <laughs> we are solving a problem. Because the problem is that there are a lot of really amazing autistic people who are struggling socially, who are human, right? And humans are social are wired socially we cannot live without other people you know or it's like i just thought of that show alone and there's it's a show where people are you know out 
in the boondocks by themselves out in nature and they have to like you know survive and it is very 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 difficult we need each other and I just have too many people who are not they're socially isolated and what happens is your mental health suffers we know about the high rate of suicidality and we teach UCLA's peers program, which is a proactive approach to mental health. And yeah, so I'm looking forward to bringing more to the commission. I'm looking forward to just bringing more awareness around like the importance of mental health. And when we talk about autism, we are talking about mental health and we are also. And Mara, Beyond um, this interview, how can our listeners learn more about you and IRL social skills? Well, you can find us on Facebook, on Instagram, moving a little bit more into Twitter. We're on LinkedIn. We have a YouTube channel. There's not a lot on our YouTube channel. And, you know, this is, I just started this business in March of 2021. And it's, you know, a single shingle, just me, just with a, you know, I just had a dream. And I was like, okay, what are you going to do here? You know, there's a problem. There's too many cool people who are disconnected from each other. We got to present something that actually works. And so we have been having, we have had almost 100 families come through our program. So... Just check us out on those social medias. You can look at our website. We're actually doing a site migration. So our website is, you know, it's still there. We still have a presence, but the new website will be up and running the first week of November. And it is a website that's going to be more suited to teaching courses, which is, which is what we teach, workshops and courses. Using UCLA's Program for the Education and Enrichment of Relational Skills, or PEERS, plus our first 15 minutes of supplementary education as recommended and kind of insisted upon by the actually autistic community, which is that, you know, mindfulness, meditation, self-regulation, interoception skills, and neurodiversity affirming like messaging. Well, Mara, I really appreciate the conversation. Thanks um, so much for joining me and, uh, educating me a little bit and uh, hopefully many of our listeners on IRL social skills. Thank you, Doug, for having me. Thanks so much to Mara for the conversation. To learn more about Mara, please check out the link in the podcast description for this episode. Did you know that Autism Personal Coach provides extraordinary support to live self-sufficient and purpose-driven lives through our customized coaching if this is something that you're interested in learning more about, please visit AutismPersonalCoach.com for more information. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable and educational experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.